Good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our um, space of contemplation and gathering and reflection. Um, I'm glad you could make it back um, today. I, I hope everyone uh, rested well, had a good evening last night. Um, so I think we'll just spend a few minutes just sort of arriving in, into our bodies and posture and sitting here, being here together again. Um, today we'd like to uh, focus more on the Kuan Yin Dharmas as part of the write-up and uh, connect that a little bit to some of the practices we were doing yesterday. So just to help us settle, uh, just to take 10 minutes or so, just uh, feel into your sitting posture as you're sitting on the chair or the cushion. And again, maybe just coming aware of the sensation of pressure, of contact between the, the buttocks, thighs, or the coccyx area, and the cushion, the ground beneath you. And just allowing your attention to to gently orientate around that sensations, it helps to ground us here. And as we feel that ground, taking a deep breath into the ground, so we just uh, breathing out, and then on the next inhalation, slowly and fully breathing complete breath through the body and feeling that breath subtly suffusing through the whole body down to the ground, through the legs, the torso, arms and head. And breathing out, uh, it's whatever momentum that we feel inwardly, this sort of endless sense of momentum onto the next thing allowing that just to soften on the out-breath so that we can more fully encourage ourselves to be here for this morning together. Taking time out, so very precious, to dedicate ourselves to this activity of awakening. Little by little, planting the seeds that cause and give rise to awakening of gathering, of presence, contemplation, of sharing of sangha, of supporting each other. So again, just finding your seat, connecting with the body, the sensation of the body sitting, and taking a few deep and slow lengthening breaths to help steady here now, breathing through the body, Feeling that breath energy suffused through the whole body, the internal organs and through the bones and through the blood vessels and the marrow and the skin and the flesh, cellular level. Breathing out, softening the jaw, the shoulders, softening the belly. This gift of one breath at a time, so a gift of life 
that's offered with each breath. This breath is the connection, our connection to our life force, to our life. Savoring each breath, taking time to breathe. As Ajahn Chah said, if you feel you haven't got time to meditate, then you don't really understand that you haven't really got time even to breathe properly. To meditate is to breathe. To breathe is to meditate. To breathe with awareness. To feel the breath in the body. Again, on an exhalation, being mindful to gently just soften around the jaw and feel the sensation there, breathing out, just softening around the jaw, breathing out, softening around the shoulders, down through the torso, softening the belly. Breathing in and feeling the infusion of life force through the in-breath, allowing it to suffuse through the body, subtly straightening the spine, lengthening the spine, back of the neck. As we begin to arrive here in this space, we feel our body more and what the body carries, the momentum of our life, everything that we've lived, that we've been with. Every experience actually is held at very deep levels within the body, remembered cellular level. And so some of what we're with is the feeling tones within the body that can feel achy or tender, constricted or heavy or tired. So we rush through our days and then realize actually we're tired. Or maybe we feel also bubbling and potentiality that's also carried in the body. Potentiality, openings, tingling, enthusiasm, hope. So everything that we're with, just holding that with this gently, with this awareness. There's no judgment. It's just allowing the body to be, feel what it feels, be what it is. And this path of practice is to hold awareness, receive the experience. Receive the breath. And again, subtly on the in-breath, feeling the infusion of that breath energy through the body. Suffusing through the legs and the arms, up into the brain, through the torso, and then on the out-breath, releasing and softening and letting go. So gently, 
and help to irrigate through the body the opening of the awareness and the breath energy and then on the out breath releasing and softening and releasing around the constrictions and places of holding So again, welcome uh, back, everyone, um, to our, our weekend, and welcome those who have just joined us today. I'm going to uh, spend some time this morning, and uh, the whole session actually that we've um, we've dedicated until we we finish at uh, two o'clock. Be a break for a sort of mini snack break midday, <laughs> some tea and snacks. Uh, but we're going to dedicate the time to focusing around a very profound aspect of the Dharma's, a Dharma door, which is not so much taught within the classical Theravada Vipassana insight stream of transmission, although it is um, very um, complementary to the insight practice. Um, and this is the uh, practices around the Bodhisattva Kuan Yin, which generally speaking has come more through the Mahayana school. And in particular, the transmission that we're sharing uh, today with you has come uh, to us, or we practice with um, Chinese school under the auspices of Master Xunhua, who is a, a disciple of um, Master Xu Yun, one of the great, really great Chan masters, Zen masters of um, of the last century. Both were great Chan masters. So the Kuan Yin Dharma door is founded within the the contemplative school of of wisdom, of contemplation, or it's called Prajna Prajna Paramita, the profound contemplation, the Paramita, the spiritual perfection of of um, of uh, fundamental um, uh, profound wisdom, wisdom, liberating wisdom um, that's taught, say, for example, in the Heart Sutra, and then also um, Kuan Yin appears in other sutras as a as a perfect embodiment of compassion. So, so, in the synthesis of both. So we look forward to sharing some of the Dharma practices and Dharma door of Kuan Yin with you. Um, but we're going to begin again with um, the bowing practice. If you remember, we did that yesterday, um, where we uh, will we'll stand, or if you uh, need to sit, or adjust your posture according to what kind of body type and capacity you have. This is a very good way to begin a session of contemplation and practice, as we did yesterday, of just taking the complexities of our life and all the thinking that, that we experience, particularly felt around the head and the brain, taking all of that in, into the bow and into this place of, of letting go, of giving back, um, of arriving ever as we stand up from the bow ever fresh, ever more present here with this prajna, this open mind, inquiring mind. 
So for those that um, um, be helpful to see the mantra, it's um, here on. Can you just? It's just on page four. Thanks. Namo Kuan Shu Yin So the second mantra. Page four, and as Kisara explained yesterday, Namo in the Theravada is a word that comes up again and again, which um, means I honor. And the Chinese, they sometimes translate that in a very beautiful way, which is I return my life or I give back to Kuan, the one that regards or contemplates or listens, uh, Yin to the sound, to sound. And Xu is the world, the one that regards the sounds of the world. Pusa is the transliteration into Chinese of the word Bodhisattva. So this is um, talking about the practice of deep listening, listening to the outer sound, inner sound, but listening with this attitude of co- uh, compassion and, and uh, wisdom, discernment, contemplation, and um, listening connected with this, rather than separating out into the 10,000 things as the gathering in and bringing everything back to the listening nature. So this practice of the bowing is, a, is an external form of that inner, that inner resonance, that inner contemplation, that inner practice. So we can uh, do that for about 10 minutes as a, a preparation for our day of entering the Kuanin Dharma door. So to review, um, the, the actual form of the practice is that we do one round of the mantra together, Namo Kuan Shi Yin Pusa, and the, 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 the tape will help us, the CD will help us, and then the second round of the mantra, Kirisara is half of the room, this side will bow with him, while my side of the room, this side will stand and keep holding the mantra, and then we alternate, then my side goes into the bow, I kitty sorrow's bow, half um, stands up and holds the mantra until we hear the bell, and then we all, whoever, whichever side is then bowing, at that point this would be my side probably, where after the end of our round we stand up and then we join together to complete the practice.
So we're just going to sit again for 10 minutes or so. Again, establishing this uh, inner refuge, the inner awareness, uh, listening. This Guan Yin quality is the, the listening, the being present for how it is with uh, gentleness, compassion, kindness, receptivity, listening with the body, feeling tones, the sounds of the morning. Noticing not just the quality of what's received, but the appearing and disappearing of phenomena within the sky-like space of the mind. Before we begin the Dharma talk, we're going to do the Great Compassion Mantra, which is the Mantra of Kuan Yin. You can just listen because it's quite a long mantra. We don't have it on the sheets here in front of you. So as you as you hear the mantra, you can just uh, let it resonate, and it is meant to run like water and carry the intentionality of compassion into the world around us. So each line is connected with invoking the great bodhisattvas, great beings that uh, are conduits for the Dharma. It's remembering the refuges and articulate the many hands and eyes, the different response bodies of Kuan Yin in response to the, all the different kinds of suffering in order to alleviate suffering and to awaken living beings. So this mantra is directly connecting with invoking the deepest heart qualities and then embodying them and uh, having an energetic body, invoking the energetic body of Kuan Yin and allowing that uh, to, through the words, through the sounds, through the syllables and through the intentionality of the mind to resonate out and in so all beings, inner beings, outer beings are touched by the river of mercy and compassion and invited to awaken, to awaken out of suffering and then to act in ways that are for the welfare of the whole.
Before the Dharma talk begins, so if you wish uh, to stretch, just take a minute or two quietly. So, good morning, everyone. Mm. I didn't set out to study. Theravada Buddhism, Mahayana Buddhism. I think probably I didn't even know Buddhism had an H in it. 
for a long time. <laughs> I knew I was suffering. I knew I'd been following my own advice for quite some time and it wasn't working. And I'd heard there was a master that was wise. So I went to Thailand. I didn't... Northern school, southern school, Theravada, Mahayana, I never heard of that. Or I wasn't, wasn't important. I realize now we were practicing in the Thai forest school that that was part of what could be called Theravada Buddhism, the school of the elders, that focused on awakening through honestly acknowledging, being interested in opening to the experience of dukkha or or stress, suffering unsatisfactoriness. And, and those uh, teachings were, in, right from the early days, wonderful. I quickly got a sense of, oh yeah, it makes, yeah. He's wanting things to be other than the way they are and the boulders aren't heavy if you're not always trying to move them around. That when when you quit wrestling with a boulder, it's there's relief. And the teachings around ethics that that free us from remorse and give rise to a sort of mind that's more easy to gather. It's a platform for meditation, for samadhi. And that ethical living, you know, creates this skillful web. It's an offering to those around us when we learn to recognize and restrain those actions that harm ourselves and others. And it became clear early on that uh, the even a little bit of skill at uh, bringing our mind back to the present, learning how to relax, becoming single-minded, unified around the simplicity of standing, walking, sitting, lying down, whatever we were doing, was was a uh, peaceful. Impermanent, yes, but still skillful, peaceful, that wasn't so dependent on external things. And that that mind also, that it's just relatively gathered. Could see into the way things are. As the Buddha says, uh, When there is samadhi within, when there's gatheredness, the heart sing, sees things as they actually are.
And that when the heart is uh, composed, just like it doesn't take some extraordinary insight to recognize that, for example, when a cast iron stove has been heated for hours and a drop of water falls on it, it's there and it's gone, insubstantial. So too, when the heart is composed, sounds, impressions, and amazingly thoughts that seem so convincing. You're a basket case, Kitty Zorro. Each of these sounds, vibrations, dissolving, ephemeral. And what is ephemeral can't, how can we expect what is ephemeral to be trustworthy? And how can we call? We can, I guess, call something that's shh. You can call it my shh. But uh, my body that's there and then it's gone, my strength which is there and then it's gone, my happy mood which is there and then it's gone, we, we can call it me and mine, but it's a way of talking. It's not actually the reality. So this recognition... Uh, of not mine, not self, anatta, letting go, touching into emptiness. And the austere, austere practices of our uh, Thai forest tradition, sitting up all night once a week, rather than having the perfect conditions, In those early days, God, we'd have been—I'd been laughed out of the room, sitting on two big cushions. <gasps> I know it sounds a bit crazy, but we had to sit on concrete floors, and one thin layer of cotton was considered—you know—that's your cushion. You get a double-layered sitting cloth. Hey, were you trying to evade things? So everything was falling asleep. It was, you know, there were no cushions. Cushions were for the head. You didn't sit on cushions. That was... uh... So there was a lot of practice that even in the midst of suffering, that even in when you're exhausted and this and that, and when the mind's go, I don't want it to be this way. But the beauty of that practice was we practice learning to see the distress that was created by pushing against it, not wanting it, and even when things were challenging, uncomfortable, classically difficult, we had the opportunity to notice when one's not pushing it away or grasping at something that there was peace. Yes, you could still say pain or this and that, but there definitely was the sense of, ah. So I had a lot of gratitude, and uh, and then a um, but in those in that relief, a lot of old undigested karmic tendencies uh, started coming. 
And then I also got really sick. Diarrhea, bit by a centipede, then ended up with typhoid fever and almost dying and uh, saved by the what was left of the American military hospital still in Bangkok, got uh, saved through antibiotics, massive doses. But then for years after that, really, really not able to function, had to lie down for almost continually for three years, but then still, even for years around that, just inflammation, internal bleeding, the mind that couldn't work. And I had, I know you should just let go and be at peace, but I also, part of me just really wanted to get better. Also wanted to give back, and yeah, one can just be at peace, but I want to get better. And I came across a, a newsletter somehow that got to our monastery from the Chinese, great Chinese John Master, Master Xunhua. And he, 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 he mentioned something called Great Compassion Mantra, that's what we chanted. And Kuan Yin, I didn't know who's Kuan Yin. And just there's a little snippet there, you know, uh, There is no illness that Kuan Yin can't help. You chant this mantra with a dedication that uh, sincerity, there will be a response. So I, I, I read that. I thought, oh. Found a book. I saw their mantra. had no idea how to pronounce it, what to do, but I just thought I'm going to try this. I didn't have any idea who's Kuan Yin. But I wanted to get better. So I started uh, chanting the mantra. Later I found out in a very unorthodox way. But with sincerity. And then a few years later there was a response. The, the disciples of that particular master came to, to visit our monastery. In England, I had by then moved to help establish the Theravada monasteries in England. And Master Wa had uh, been establishing, after leaving uh, China, uh, monasteries in uh, California. And his two uh, Western disciples, who had done an extraordinary, I don't know, thousand-mile bowing pilgrimage for peace, every three steps they bowed, one bow, up the coast of, California, from San Francisco all the way up to Ukiah. Many adventures, many amazing stories. And so um, I got permission from my Western teacher, Ajahn Sumedho, to to talk to the monks about uh, this mantra that I had been doing. And so they said, all right, uh, let's hear it, Kitty Zorro. And I can't even remember how I did it, but I, I had knew nothing about it flowing like water. And I had all the syllables with different intonations and strength, the ones that felt really powerful. And they shook their head and hung sure the senior one was, was very diplomatic. He said, well, there was a lot of um, uh, enthusiasm. 
But that's, uh, then they taught me how to uh, chant the mantra. And then I started uh, through the teachings of their teacher, who uh, we met a few years later, uh, finding out who is this Kuan Yin. Yes, the original, the Sanskrit name is Avalokiteshvara. Avalokita means to regard. Shvara is the sounds or the cries of the world or the suffering of the world. Bodhisattva, the great awakened being, who's not only awake but committed. So desire, which when it's selfish, diluted, distorted, is the cause of suffering. But without desire, we don't practice. It's a paradox. Used to drive our teacher Ajahn Chah crazy. Desire causes the problem, but if we don't have any desire, we don't practice. <clears throat> when little by little as one's working with the streams of energy and effort, the desire is purified so that it becomes aspiration. So that it is one, it is an aspiration that becomes compassion. It becomes the responding, the dedication to sense dukkha, sense suffering, sense distress, sense difficulty, wherever it is, and to respond. We literally just cut off all the desire. If we're not careful, we just kill our energy. So when I started reading uh, the teachings of Master Xinhua, I realized that Avalokiteshvara, or in Chinese, as Tanisha was saying, the Chinese translation of that being is Quan Yin. Quan to listen, Yin to the sounds. And that name was the Kuan Yin's method of meditation, where she awoke, because she combined listening with contemplation. Usually we attach to the sounds, I like them, I don't like them, but suffusing everything with hearing. Realize that sounds come and go. But even when the sounds are gone, the hearing nature doesn't, isn't destroyed. We don't keel over dead in between sounds. You might say the hearing is stopped. But the hearing nature remains the knowing. the timeless dimension of being doesn't come and go. It's called returning the hearing. Now I realize Avalokiteshvara appears very prominently in the um, four great Mahayana, uh, is at least, discourses. Mahayana means great vehicle.
at first when one is really caught up in one's own dukkha, one's own suffering, you know, you, we might think about trying to help others, but how can I help anybody else? I'm just so tangled up I can barely get through the day, much less think about helping all beings. Noticing dukkha, letting go, tasting peace. But then when that flowers, when there's that recognition that we're brothers and sisters, when the heart opens and starts to let go of its own limitation and suffering, it it senses there's all sorts of suffering. So Mahayana means great vehicle that widens. It also uses desire. Still, when I wanted just to get well, that was my selfish desire. But it was also a desire, it wasn't just all selfish. It was a, an aspiration to give back, to be of service. So I realized, wow, these are so wonderful. And so often I found myself in situations where there's somebody struggling, not only myself but others, and not knowing how to, how to help. And as Tanishra was alluding uh, at the beginning of this uh, session, Avalokiteshvara, or Kuan Yin's manifestation, encompasses the whole spectrum from the most profound, merciful, responding to every conceivable difficult, challenging, distressing situation, that which bestows fearlessness and healing and safety. From that range of the merciful all the way to the most profound, succinct recognition of the non-dual, empty nature of things as is expressed in the Heart Sutra. Form is not different from emptiness. Emptiness is not different from form. No eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, or mind. This dissolving of all the false distinctions revealing the undivided, unmoving, all-encompassing nature where all things merge. And I started uh, to learn about how in the, for example, the Sadharma Pundarika Sutra, the Lotus Sutra, a discourse the Buddha gave near the end of his life, he had a whole chapter, a whole section called the Universal Door, chapter 25, which is about Avalokiteshvara Kuan Yin, where the Buddha, Sakyamuni Buddha, our teacher, was asked a question, hey, uh, <clears throat> how did this Bodhisattva get the name Avalokiteshvara? The Buddha talked about the one who listens at ease to the sounds of the world and, and, and responds to suffering. The Buddha talked about that uh, the great power of this awakened being. And he said, those who hold the name of Kuan Yin, that when one patiently, persistently, 
reverentially returns, holds this name, that one thought, Namo, I, I open to, I honor, I return, Quan Yin Pusa, that awakened one who listens at ease to the sounds of the world. <clears throat> the Buddha taught that when one holds this name, if you're all caught up in lust, desire, wanting, that little by little one becomes dispassionate, one becomes freed from that. If one is, if one is caught up, entangled in hostility, aversion, that othering that just really get out of here, that even despises, that if one can, as a practice, holding the name, the Buddha taught, no, one can be separated from, dispassionate toward, abandoned, let go of aversion and delusion. The Buddha talked about uh, all sorts of difficult situations that one could be in if one could call on that. One could think, <clears throat> whoa, 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 wait a minute, Kitty Saw. reason I got into Buddhism was, uh, you know, all this wanting other people to do the thing, you know, doesn't really work. Buddha taught it's a self, self-path thing. Sorry to interrupt, but just thought I would... Let, hope I didn't throw you off your stride. <laughs> I say, well, thank you, thank you for that. But wait a minute. In the, yes, there's very important that this truth must be tasted each individual for themselves. But uh, you know, is it all done alone? Well, if, if that's the case, why? How come it's just not Buddha Dhamma? Take refuge in Buddha awareness, Dhamma of the way things are. There it is. As we were looking yesterday, what, did he just throw Sangha in there to build up the numbers? You know, two's a bit weak. Let's think of a three. Anybody, ideas? Sangha. But, you know, Sangha, very important. So many times people had a doubt, a blind spot. They didn't know what to do when they then talked to the Buddha. The answer revealed. It's a support that came from, yes, truly we're all one thing, but when delusion contracts us so that we lose touch with our boundless <coughs> access to all that is wise and compassionate, we get contracted. And so other power, the blessing, the support, the nourishment of others is very important, even the classical Buddhist Theravada teachings. You know. and, and when, when those got attached to the fun, oh yeah, but you're still not getting it, Kitty Saw, the Buddha, he's a person. He was there, yeah, you got help. Who's his Kuan Yin character? Well, once when the someone got so enamored with the Buddha's form, his curly hair, his golden skin, his beautiful voice, he was dedicated. The Buddha thought, <clears throat> we need another level of teaching here, so he sent him off. I got distressed. I've been sent away from the Buddha. The Buddha appears to him and said, what's the problem? What's the problem? 
the calf's been sent away from his mom. I mean, what's the problem? And the Buddha points to his own body and says, you think this is the Buddha? This body comes and goes. When you see the Dharma, when you, we see the nature of the things, we meet this Buddha, this living core. Our Buddha nature is not dead space. The awakened listening is also responsive. And at the core of things, there's that which not only can know, but can respond. So the Kuan Yin, the merciful side, is reminding us that the, within the awakened heart there is extraordinary capacity to respond. And that at first the great wise compassionate real one realizes not everybody just wants to know about emptiness and meditation, one meets people because they're in danger oftentimes or in illness or in conflict and, and want a way through. So Kuan Yin makes affinities. The great compassionate spirit creates affinities with living beings by helping them alleviate suffering. This dimension of access to the Buddha's teachings is not so known in the West, but holding the holy name, the sacred name, of Buddha or Kuan Yin, it's in other, all the great religions too, a very powerful way of entering the Dharma. The Buddha was talking, uh, this part of the sutra was in verse in the uh, Lotus Sutra, When the Buddha said, whoever sees her face or learns about her, I use uh, her here, but actually one can't say that uh, Kuan Yin is male or female. She made a vow to manifest. Compassion's actually boundless, formless, that has within it all forms. She vowed to manifest in the form that would meet the suffering that's needed. And one of the forms that's most popular uh, now is because of this heavy, patriarchal, willful imbalance. For so many beings, the compassion manifests, appears, is recognized in that nurturing, beautiful, female, blessing, touching, healing, listening appearance. The Buddha said, who can hold this Bodhisattva's name will leave behind the sorrows of existence. Should you be pushed into a raging fire by enemies so harmful, mean, and cruel, evoke the strength of Quan Shi Yin. The blaze will turn into a limpid pool, cast adrift upon the mighty ocean where dragons, ghosts, sharks, and turns surround evoke the strength of Kuan Yin. You'll float atop the waves and will not drown. Suppose an evil person pushes you headlong from atop the peak called Wondrous Tall, evoke the strength of Kuan Shi Yin. 
and like the sun in space, you will not fall. Surrounded by a mob of heartless bandits, their weapons drawn with murder on their minds, evoke the strength of Quan Shi Yin. Their evil hearts will soften and turn kind. In the discourse, all sorts of frightful situations more are listed where one What's being offered is learning to trust, not just the thinking mind that's trying to work it all out, all our, our, figure it out, but learn to be open to the possibility of trusting the sacred name and letting the name dissolve and point us back to the listening. We can think, oh, well, that's doing nothing. That's, that's just it, isn't it? The idea that to really do something we have to only use this rational, logical, figure-it-out, willful thing that's somehow trusting the centrality of listening, a word that is encouraging us to, to trust that this is not just a nothing thing to do. Namo. Quan Yin. Sounds crazy. But having, by the time I first heard Kuan Yin's name, having started to taste the power of a mind that's gathered, and with a mind that gets a little gathered and seeing this empty nature, those drops of water that seem like things realizing how we think it is isn't how it really is, how this composed mind starts to recognize this, this swirling, empty, vibratory nature of reality. Then in the Sarangama Sutra, uh, another great discourse where the, uh, where the Buddha turns to Kuan Yin's meditation of returning the hearing, being so efficacious for our age, to turn the heart directly to the timeless, listening into the nature, returning the hearing. And in that discourse, uh, Kuan Yin talked more about her meditation. And talking about how these miraculous powers all come out of the power of hearing. Kuan Yin talking about it. Because I do not contemplate sounds for my own sake, but rather listen to the sounds of those whom I contemplate. I can enable living beings throughout the ten directions who are suffering and in distress to attain freedom by contemplating their sounds. Since my knowledge, understanding has turned around and come back, 
when it's not turned around, we're focused on objects blinded by the sense of solidity. When we turn, return the light, return the hearing, we listen into and recognize the empty nature. Return to this ground, this centrality, primordial source. So when Kuan Yin said, since my understanding and views had turned around and come back, I can make it so that if living beings are caught in a fire, the fire will not burn them. Or in contemplating and listening when they've turned around, I can make it so that if living beings are floundering in deep water, the water cannot drown them. Some of these teachings are what could be called secret teachings, and Master Wa said the secret is not that they're hidden. The secret is that we just try things and look in our own hearts and say, hmm, what is the response? With our intellectual mind, we can just dismiss, oh, it's impossible, don't bother me. But I was in such a situation where I, I would try anything And then over the years of practicing meditation, composing the mind, and then seeing how lost we get in our thoughts, the teaching around holding the name became so helpful. And it sounds very dualistic. Oh, come on, Giddy Sorrow. I mean, that's that's for kindergarten. And then I started to realize that many of the great Chan masters, the great, ones who turned the mind directly to the core of the matter, also did a lot of devotional practice. And that they did the devotional practice in a, in a way that merged right with the wisdom practice. So on the one hand, there's the merciful calling on the power of compassion to help us in a situation. On the other hand, Kuan Yin's meditation method of returning the hearing, like right now, rather than chasing thoughts of, well, Kitty Sorrow, he's started off all right, but I think he's losing it. He's, uh, I wish he'd pull it back around. He needs, he needs to keep better notes. <laughs> Might be the case, but Noticing the sounds and the interpretations, yes, there's that story, it might be true, it might be false, but whatever those sounds are ephemeral, that story is arising and ceasing, and though the sounds in the hearing nature, the knowing nature, remains, like those guests that come and go and the host remains, and the dancing dust, but the space is unmoved. In Kuan Yin's meditation, we don't just get fixated on the objects through wisdom. We realize their ephemeral nature and start to notice right in the midst of all this movement, the stillness.
the peacefulness. And many times, certainly in my own life, when I was struggling with all this illness and moments, yes, I could just be at peace with it and notice some peace, uh, you know, to, to, but there was also, you know, wanting to help and wanting to serve. And is that bad? Is it wrong? And yet one gets too caught up in wanting, and yes, there's more suffering. So it was a paradox. But rather than just endlessly thinking in a circle, I really started practicing this universal door of, of learning to write with the feelings, write with the doubt, write with the worrisome circumstance. Namo Kuan Yin Pusa, or just Kuan Yin. That sound, not trying to bulldoze anything, not trying to destroy anything but just letting that sound touch the situation and learning to trust one center of gravity moving toward the listening rather than only trusting, trying to fix it. It's like learning to work from the inside. It's a very powerful way the Buddha taught that the Suffering comes from a misunderstanding of the nature of thought. And one of the great values of, of um, mantra practice is it interrupts our thinking when we have a repetitive phrase. It's not crushing the thinking, but a repetitive phrase like Bhutto, be awake, Bhutto, or Kuan Yin, that uses the cognitive faculty, but because it keeps flowing through the mind, we can also notice each of the sounds, namo, kuan chi yin pusa, each of the sounds dissolve, take us back to that stillness, allow us to notice the listening, the mantra is dissolving itself. It's like Mission Impossible, those movies where they hear their little tape and this message will self-destruct and uh, then it disappears. Well, mantras have a magical mission that seems impossible, but they keep dissolving. And the mantra is pointing, in this case, what the mantra actually means is Nammo Kuan Chi Impusa. It reminds us to return to the listening. So countless times uh, in, in, in our life, I spent a long time learning the great compassion mantra because that's, that's a harder thing to learn. It took months. But once one learns it, using the cognitive, but in a way that lets the thoughts flow, that returns one to the listening and deepening one's trusted, let's see what effect this has. There's just been countless situations I've noticed where it's, uh, uh, it's not just nothing. Something happens. 
I didn't die, did get better. I'm no great physical specimen, but it was something very powerful. So many situations in our time in uh, South Africa or in dangerous fire. I mean, you know, we had situations where we had uh, were saved in fires. Very threatening situations. Once I had done a, a fire, it got out of control. We were doing a big fire break, and the, uh, the other team that was helping us, somebody wasn't feeling well. They let the fire get away. It was now gone. I was trying to run in front of it. I couldn't do it. I was overwhelmed. I just kept namo kwanji and pusa. Hey, kwanyin, what? Yeah, I can't do this. I didn't have the cell phone. I couldn't believe I didn't have it. Something drew Tanisra to look out the window quite some half mile away or so. That moment, and got her to make a call to call the, the brigade. And within minutes, we had this team of uh, like a Zulu impi, like these warriors. They came and they worked in a group. <laughs> They, they were these big beaters. I mean, they just, they ran that thing back. Could not believe it. The mind could start thinking, oh, yeah, but, you know, maybe that was a... But over enough time, I realized so often when my thinking mind just goes crazy... So helpful just to hold the mantra to remind me, take refuge in the listening. And those society makes listening so passive, so not anything. Is it really true that when we're poised and listening that nothing's happening? No, if, my, if, my, if I'm out there, you know, doing something. Yeah, there's a place for doing something, but the deep trusting listening very healing. Because one can access, because when one goes to the listening, which actually encompasses everything, one can access a different kind of knowing. So many go through the countless little miracles of when one pauses. And even doing that with our doubts and worries, rather than having to force an answer to let the doubts and all the different sides and the complex situation, and to know when mano-vinyana, the thinking mind, just can't do it right now, hear those different sides, namo konchimpusa, just bless all that swirl of viewpoints with the one who listens at ease to the sounds of the world. This principle of the energy that comes when our contracted sense of me consciously brings into the heart a name, a principle, and honors it. It's what the Buddha called puja, chant. We translate it as chanting, but it's a very important principle. 
which uh, hasn't been so appreciated in Western Buddhism because, I mean, there's reasons. When devotional practices are rammed down your throat, do it this way or go to hell forever and ever. And ever. No redemption. You're gone. Down. There's been, you know, a lot of wounding, and, and, but the principle, do, do we want to throw it all out? Sometimes when one can lift up in the heart, the Buddha said, When you lift up in the heart that which is worthy, there is immeasurable blessing. There's a, it's like plugging in. I couldn't, it was actually plugged in, and Dalila said, I forgot to turn it on. But sometimes we forget to plug it in, and we need to be connected. Selfishness, confusion splits us off through the apartheid of the heart. And even a word like Buddha, and the Buddha pointed to his body, look, this ain't the Buddha. It's not the real Buddha. But wakefulness is boundless, measureless. So is Kuan Yin, the one who listens at ease to the sounds of the world. There's no wall there. It's deep, unfathomable. The wise and compassionate one who listens at ease to the sounds of the world. So when we there's countless holy names, but this particular one really touches me, also Buddha. They all point back to the sacred core. But when we hold that name and let the name, this is where it's a non-dual practicing and can guide us back to the root of the matter. When we let the name dissolve and learn to deepen our trust in just staying right here now, Relax. There's energy, there's blessing, there's power. So many times when one is really caught up, when Tanisha and I do a chant together. Namo Kwan Chu Yin Pu Mo Kwan Whatever one's doing for a moment, just namo to relinquish trying to change the furniture. And just to honor, for example, the one who listens at ease. To let the heart trust for a moment in the deep listening. It's not just a nothing thing to do. The secret thing gets revealed. Is that, 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 so many times I realize, wow, I feel different, different perspective. Oh. The merciful side of Kuan Yin is one goes deeper into it, then takes one to the non-dual core of Kuan Yin. The mantra at the end of the Heart Sutra, Gatte, Gatte, Par, Gatte, Par, Sangate, Bodhisvaha, gone. Gone. Gone beyond. Beyond the beyond. 
awakened. Svaha. So the devotional, little by little, just points us back to the heart so that we then can ultimately do Kuan Yin's meditation of returning the hearing and listening in to all the conditions that we get enchanted by and take to be me and mine, to notice that they are what they are, changing ephemeral conditions, touching again to that stillness, that stillness within the movement, movement within the stillness, not split, perfectly whole. So I just uh, wanted to talk a little bit about the Kuan Yin Dharmas, uh, just touching them. Some of them are hard to do, like learning the longer mantras, but to live in a place like South Africa where we had so many challenges, that was one of the most powerful, wonderful supports, is to keep returning, to be able to chant that mantra, which according to the masters, very powerfully penetrates heaven and earth and blesses conditions and deepens our fearlessness that Kuan Yin has vowed to help beings discover their fearlessness. And also the shorter mantras that anybody can do, that's why it's called the universal door, just Namo, I return my life. And I think in this world we live in today, whatever face one, one is, has, to learn the value again of the sacred name, to take us back to that core and to learn to trust in the listening is really needed now. So I offer uh, these uh, thoughts for us to consider. And we have a, uh, a little time for a quiet snack break. And then uh, of, I think, uh, 20 minutes. And then if there is any discussion or questions or comments about what we've been doing, we can uh, do that when we come back. But thank you for your patience. So, are there any reflections or comments or questions? Uh, Yes? Hi. Um, I've been wrestling with a question since yesterday um, that kind of came up again during your talk. Um, and I kind of, uh, I, I want to uh, apologize in advance because I feel a little bit clumsy around this, so I may be kind of training myself on the job, so to speak. Um, so I noticed my own resistance with rituals, particular, particularly in uh, institutional environments, but, and I, I would include this one, in religious environments, mm-hmm. faith environments. Uh, but even more so when, when the traditions do not come from my own cultural background. So um, 
but I appreciated what you said yesterday about, you know, so if you feel resistance, then work with it, right? Or, um, yeah. More or less, I'm paraphrasing. Mm. <laughs> um, but I feel like there's a larger discussion that usually gets bypassed. Um, and there's usually some part of me also that kind of chooses to bypass the very hard work of, of uh, acknowledging the suffering around it. Because um, for me right now, I've actually never, I have to think, I don't think I've ever kind of immersed myself in uh, Chinese rituals. If I am, I'm assuming many of the things we've been doing the last couple of days are coming from that part of the world. But uh, it feels to me like I'm also part of some cultural appropriation moment. I mean, I'm used to that. I'm of South Asian origin, so I'm kind of used to... From where? South Asian or Indian origin. Um, so I'm very used to kind of taking with a giant grain of salt the fact that many of the things that come from my family's part of the world has been appropriated sort of beyond maybe uh, relief. Mm. <laughs> so at this point in history. Um, so I don't know how this sangha addresses that. Um, it may seem too astronomical <laughs> of a task, um, but I, I kind of appreciated yesterday's conversation around privilege and um, culture, and so I, you know, I mean, why not? Why not raise it, right? Mm. So thank you. No, thank you. That's a very. There's been so much damage done by. I mean, I grew up. I don't know if you heard me talking about what it was like growing up in the Bible Belt. In, uh, in America, being regularly told I was going to hell because even though we were in a Father Jewish, Mother Southern Baptist, even though we were in a Unitarian church that, that was teaching, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you, a Christian core teaching, just the fact we'd walk through that door was, uh, you know, I've had people, you know, over the years tell us even sitting quietly, you're, you're asking the devil to jump into your mind and that, you know, meditation's evil. And, 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 you know, so I reacted so much to fundamental kind of practices that I, my main gateway into practice or to even... I had a deep sense that there must be some possibility for growing beyond one's trouble, one's fears and doubts and stuff. But um, the devotional practice were the last thing I was interested in. So when I got to Thailand, it was the meditation that impressed me. These big Buddhas just seemed ugly, and some even had Christmas lights on them flashing. And But I was so impressed that our teachers and and, and just said, you don't... You don't have to believe in any of that stuff. It's not what's important. But you can't live here in this monastery unless you're willing not to harm the creatures in the forest. You can't do that. You don't have to pretend to like the Buddha. You don't have to believe in all this bowing stuff. You don't have to believe in even believe there was one. And we were really encouraged to doubt all that if we wanted to. But uh, to be allowed to be there, you, 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 could, you had to try to not to harm, not to steal, not to abuse anybody, to tell the truth. And we, there was no intoxicants allowed there. And so it was, uh, 
And so for many of uh, uh, many Westerners, and also like what you saw us to do is not what's normally in the insight centers, don't have the kind of chanting and, and emphasis on bowing there that we do. That's quite unusual. But the appreciation for it came later, j- just welling up, uh, like the idea of, you know, like, and I feel it's very important that and what we try to do, forgive us if, if uh, you heard that somehow one was letting the side down if you weren't doing it, because that's not what we, we, we hope to give permission that people don't, that can just listen. If there's resistance, not do it, but just try to sit there and listen, let everybody else do it, but listen to the resistance. Excuse me if you felt I was telling you you should had to do it. Because, you know, to me it's important to just touch all that stuff with kindness and, and listening because uh, shaming people, forcing people, that, that kind of thing doesn't really, is not what's liberating. And different of us have different tendencies that can be, some of us help. Some people don't chant or bow, but they're deeply devotional and they're, they're deeply devoted and have a way of turning to the listening, turning to the reflection. Others, for, for myself, I, I'm actually quite a devotional type. But when I get lost, like the bowing, what's so helpful to me, I, I'm happy to bow to Mother Mary, I'm happy to bow to Ram, I'm happy to bow to Krishna, I'm happy to bow to Buddha, I'm happy to bow to God, because I know those words are words that dissolve and point to a, a mystery. So when I bow... Whether there's an image or not, because it's so clear, like, you know, the people going on about idols, oh God, yeah, there you are bowing to idols, you're evil, you're evil. I'm not thinking that that image is what's going to save us. The image is a symbol. And, um, and I was grateful that our teachers helped us appreciate that, that what one's actually doing is finding the body as just a mudra that actually appears in the Islamic traditions, the it actually is deeply in the Christian tradition in the Eastern Church. It just got forgot. It's it's in the uh, even in the uh, Jewish Judaic traditions of finding the body and touching the head to the ground as just a symbol of that which thinks and separates to touch ground. Find the moment. I love bowing because it helps me gather my pieces together. Find my body. Find my thoughts, and especially if. You're remembering a sacred name and letting the name come back to the silence. And it just helps me recover. So because it's been so useful, we just offer it. But in all our retreats, we try to say, hey, you know, you don't have to force it. But I remember someone on the, uh, maybe Tanisha can help me on our Spirit Rock retreat, who had huge resistance to bowing. And, you know, we just said, don't worry, you can just... You don't have to do the bowing, just, but he wanted to come and listen anyway. But in the, he, he, he couldn't believe it by the end. He so loved it. Um, and, but he got through the idea, the idol, you know, one can have a stance against bowing, saying, oh, that's an idol, and not realize that we're bowing to the deepest idol in the contemplative understanding is the way we bow down to our opinions and thoughts. 
So I would just encourage to, to be really sensitive to whatever these reactions are and from sometimes hurts and things from, from the past and just listen and contemplate and find one's own way. Sometimes I developed a more feeling for devotional practice in private, in, in my own, like even this, you know, I, on retreats, Sometimes if we do this, this makes it seem like, oh, only the holy ones are doing this and those that aren't doing it aren't really doing it right. You know, I don't, we don't really care. But, you know, notice what happens if one, you know, we could start the day by, (laughs) and, you know, notice what that mudra does. Or notice what the mudra of collapse does. Or just notice it's actually quite universal that when the right hand and the left hand touch, it's, it can be conducive to listening. And, you know, like in, in India, you know, namaste, of honoring the divine out there, but also honoring the divine in here. It's a beautiful mudra. So, these devotional practices that are offered are like mudras or ways that for some people help them return. But the Buddha made it very clear, if you make that the only thing, whether you do it or not, that's what he called sila bhatta baramasa, that's attachment to rites and rituals that doesn't take you home. Like even if you tied me up so I can't bow anymore, Give my lips together so I can't chant. Does that mean, oh God, now I can't, I can't go home, I can't go home. The Dharma's always here now, but these practices can be ways of helping, uh, helping generate uh, the kind of presence uh, that, it, that is useful. So really, we're, I think we're just hoping people will experiment for themselves. Am I in the territory that you're talking about, or are you talking something different? Yeah, I appreciate it. It's all Okay. Can you tell me some more? I have no problems with bowing, actually. Mm. I found it extremely humbling over Mm -hmm. time. I have no problem saying namaste to my own grandparents, you know, Mm. when they were alive. (laughs) It's the, it's the, there's a very particular culture in the United States, at least I'll talk about this culture that has developed around phony practices and the phony use of namaste and a yoga culture and now a meditation culture. And it's, you know, for me, I guess, for, so for me, the issue is not my bowing. The issue is when I see blind bowing around me to ah. these practices that have been, you know, erased in my own life, right? I mean, here I am, the daughter of an Indian immigrant, so I have my own personal pain around that. Um, but outside of the South Asian, I mean, we don't even talk about it that much in my, my own South Asian community here, actually. It's all very kind of like, there's not much activism around this. Mm. So this is, uh, which is also frustrating. Um, yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's, the, it's the way in which, I mean, and this happens like overnight. People go to a yoga class and they are Indian. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's like, it's shocking to me. Shocking to me. Um, and there are some schools who, very few schools of yoga and, and uh, other traditions that I think have guarded guarded the doors to like truly owning language and uh, lineage and that kind of thing. But by and large, it's, it it feels it feels uh, feels very violating. 
and hurtful. So, so I'm, I, I have my own baggage. This is what mm. I'm bringing to you mm. today. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Mm. I hear what you're saying, and um, my um, experience of being in the flow of Buddhist transmission for for since um, very early age is that there has, you know, been a very profound cultural exchange, actually. You know, both practicing in in Thailand and um, with Thai masters and then being brought up in that system and sort of almost by, you know, not by necessarily by choice, but by by the fact of the structure of it all, kind of being quite immersed in a culture that wasn't my own. And then um, emerging from that, and then going into another culture which was completely not my own in many ways, in, into Africa, although because of the colonialism was very recognizable as parts of it. So, and then coming into America, and then teaching in many, being in many different cultures, um, there's a constant um, sort of tension, relationship dynamic between how does all of this land. You know, how do the how do the forms land? How is the expression of the Dharma land? And to be very aware as first generation, pr- primarily um, peoples that have been impacted quite profoundly by the Buddhist um, teaching, that we are involved in that process of translation on every level, not just literal translation, psychological, cultural, um, ritualistic. Um, and now we find that it's moved into a sort of a very secular translation, which maybe is seen as a Western mo- modality now. So don't so remove the ritualistic, remove the mythological, remove the cosmological, remove the transcendent, remove the archetypal, remove the images. But what in that process, um, you know, that there is something lost, and. Um, it's uh, it's an important piece, and that piece that's that's sometimes lost is this. What I've always experienced: Buddhism, yes, it's manifested in different <coughs> cultural contexts, but it doesn't belong ultimately to a culture. That doesn't mean to say one doesn't have huge respect for the, uh, for cultures. What you know, we practiced in. It's always been an open-handed offering from the time of the Buddha, and that the you know that that part of that. Offering and that transmission has been through many different cultures. Each within each eventually do shape it according to the, the dominant culture that they're within. Then it becomes Tibetan Buddhism or Chinese Buddhism or Sri Lankan Buddhism, and now maybe Western Buddhism, whatever that will look like, or American Buddhism, as I think it's a bit different again in Europe. But that part of that transmission, what sometimes is carried through ritual through chanting, which the Buddha encouraged was a practice to do. Some of the chants we've done are ones that he actually said, do these, you know, right from, you know, um, the time of his own teaching. So it was definitely, wasn't just suttas or meditating, it was also other practices like, like chanting. There's something that gets carried in that, and that is the faith energy, that is the devotional energy. And that is, in a way, part of what I believe has enabled the Dharma to be carried through the thousands of years that it's been carried. And I think it's a complex, when it hits our secular 
world in a world where there's very complex relationship to faith and religion because in many ways of how it that has been so um, mixed with uh, the feeling of oppression or the feeling of um, being moralistic and um, marginalizing and wounding it hits a very difficult place and there's a kind of a dynamic there so um, and and I also hearing you know another resonance which you know is this this sensitivity around as you're saying in the yoga world and in the meditation world what is um, cultural appropriation and then sort of created into sort of a easy facility for people to find an identity in 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 uh, in a, to to you know to compensate for the sort of rootedness lack of rootedness rootlessness that our contemporary culture has. Um, so there is an element of that for sure, and, and that is can be very disrespectful, and done very disrespectfully. So it's a very complex, I, I'm not really giving an answer, because I don't really think it's about finding an answer, but just naming and owning and exploring these territories, because I think it's in process, and there are many different threads and strands of it. Out of all of that, um, Kitty Sar and I don't represent New York Insight or the Vipassana um, scene here. So you know, we we are we have um, found a way of practicing uh, through what has been you know what we have engaged with through the different schools and teachings and teachers that we've met and practiced very profoundly with. Um, and I feel it wasn't just a, a, an act of taking; there was also a tremendous act of giving. Um, of life energy and devotion and service for many, many years to to teachers and to um, the communities, including multicultural communities, not just white, you know, communities, also within Asian communities. So it, it doesn't feel like a sort of a disrespectful extraction. Um, it feels like a, it feels like an ongoing inquiry. How do we you know, these forms are very precious um, that we've inherited in these teachings, you know, but as Ajahn Chah said, they are ultimately the peel of a fruit, you know, that the fruit is the, you know, is the realization, the practice, and that, you know, that fruit is what is nourishing us. And that peel can appear in different forms in different shapes, you know, so, but it's necessary. <laughs> Even those that go into a secularized very stripped-down version, there's still forms being used. Um, so, you know, and, and then there can also be faith to to one's own views about forms. <laughs> so there's always faith to something, you know. So, so we, you know, in all of that mix, this is our particular offering and the way that we um, have found that it's been very valuable. So and we always actually it's, we're much clearer I think than than what Kitty Simon said. We actually say if you, you know you're welcome to do this or not, you know you're welcome to explore this or not. And we say that on every teaching engagement teach if you or retreat that we do. If you feel that this isn't going to um, um, be comfortable for you, you're welcome to listen, explore that. It's not just like you know just work with it and just get on with it. But or or come in and just sit after a ritual, ritualized process, or you know, ritual that we've undertaken. Mm. Thank you.
Um, so my question is, um, since the time I was introduced to the to your the practice what you bring um, a few years ago, I've taken on the the Guayan devotional practice. But what happens with me is that I cannot get through the practice without falling apart emotionally. Um, I'll start and then there will be all these emotions that arise and I find myself um, having a hard time staying with it because I do not want to fall apart. And um, I don't know why that happens. I could hear the, the CD, I could start, and I love to do it in the morning. And sometimes I'm like, I, I can't do that. Um, so I don't know if there's any, anything you can offer. Thank you. So the, 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 the bowing. But, you know, to me, sometimes we fall apart. It, that's one way of talking about it. It's melting. It's being touched. For a long time, when I first started doing them, I would just cry. But I would feel a sacred presence coming. And, uh, you know, to me that's okay. Just feeling blessed, touched. And then, uh, and then it passes, you know. And, um, and so, yes, one can, you know, practice touching in and, 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 and moving, m- moving back. But to me that, that in time will, 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 will change. But, uh, you know, there's been so, so much of our body and mind and life has been stuck out in the desert somewhere, you know, to have a moment of namo, I return to that which is kind and listening. Yes, it does, it does, uh, uh, can melt us. And... uh, you know, and actually, the the very important to to me a deep part of the practice. There's can be will, but our will is very impermanent. We can be strong, and then when we get exhausted, what's that? You know, and we can have things the way we want, but what happens when we can't? So having some part of our practice that also is very soft, very relinquishing. And if anything's been around, you know, sometimes out, it might rush in, but that's okay. And we can practice knowing, okay, this is how it is now. Just tears and feelings and, and stuff like that. And like a storm in Africa, we have these incredible storms, <laughs> lightning bolts and thunder, and it seems like the end of the world. But it Oftentimes it, it blows through and then the air is more clear. And um, so I, uh, when I hear you talk, I'm not worried. I, I think it sounds okay to, but, but you know, find your way. Sometimes occasionally you might need to give more distance to it and just feel your feet touching the ground and, and walking. But I, I, uh, I like falling apart a bit. I want to. Oops. I want to say that uh, it's very comforting for me this teaching that you gave because I started 
practicing uh, with an Indian master, and there was a lot of chanting. And then I've been practicing uh, vipassana for maybe now about over 10 years, and I found slowly it was getting more and more dry. And sometimes when I've had difficult times, I would just sit and chant the mantras that I chanted uh, with my Indian uh, teacher. And I was wondering, you know, I wonder if this is okay to do this. Uh, so I'm very happy for your teaching today. Um, I just wanted to say that. But I have a question on compassion. Um, sometimes I feel that I can't exactly uh, know where the, the, the boundary between compassion for oneself and compassion for uh, the other. Uh, for example, and of course I have to speak from my experience, uh, I recently have, had, have decided to, uh, to end uh, my second marriage, unfortunately, and I know that this decision was taken out of compassion for myself, but it has, has caused suffering to, to my partner. And um, actually, he said to me, I thought that with all your practice, you would be kinder. <laughs> and I get, we, we get that a lot. You know, people think that was, since we meditate or we're Buddhists, we're supposed to be, you know, uh, Holy doormats. enlightened. And, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and doormats, exactly. So, um, you know, can you say something about that, please? Thank you. Um, I think it's a good question. Um, yeah, you know, you don't want to hurt people um, deliberately or unconsciously, but we also have to find a balance between being sensitive and um, and as supportive as we can of others with the, the our own authentic life. And those two always don't meet, you know. Um, at the end of the day, we also have to be authentic to our own inner truth. And that might appear and be like a divorce or leaving a situation or a job or putting a boundary if it feels like it's appropriate um, to maintain well-being. That can be seen as, um, or, you know, it's sort of like being pushed back that you're not being compassionate. Um, actually, those kinds of actions can be compassionate. You know, they can be also an expression of, of, of appropriate or health um, for oneself. But that doesn't mean to say then one um, has to just then go the step further into aversion and pushing out someone in, in one's heart so that there's the practice of, you know, in, in psychologically and in human relationship to, to hold appropriate boundaries. And I think it's, it's a confusion of levels sometimes to say, well, there is a seamless whole, but um, does that then mean that everything is acceptable and one can never really put up a, a you know, a, a, a no? But if one doesn't have a healthy sense of no, as well as a healthy sense of yes, that's authentic to our process, then one is actually um, you know, undermining one's own root of, of compassion and wisdom. Um, so, so I think it's important to know to you know in such a powerful thing as ending a, a marriage, 
You know, it's a, po- a process, you know, obviously takes a lot of in- inner consideration, but to sort of, to, to thread out what is right for you and then to proceed in a way that is, is as you know, is, is compassionate for the whole process. But part of that, if that's part of that, is holding an appropriate boundary, then that's part of it, you know. Um, and you can only go so far as helping, you know, one's partner or the other, or leaving a situation to to you know to um, support them only so far. And then you know, then each of us has to really do our own work, you know. So um, so then you get to really explore then what what is love really, you know, what is love um, when there is uh, when you, people don't do what you want you don't do what people want you to do and you don't people don't do what you want them to do does that then mean you know that's that turns to hatred you know but is there a way of actually still holding what is appropriate without it turning to hatred or or blame um, or if one is blamed to to you know sometimes you can't do much about that people have their own reactions uh, so other than to keep clear in your own heart what is your process um it's just not going to be easy. Yeah. But I think that thing, I mean, we've had that a lot, you know, Buddhists shouldn't be angry, or, you know, it's like, you know, we can just take advantage of you. Um, but actually, that's as, um, as uh, one of our early teachers said, that's an idiot compassion. Godwin Sumarar who was a wonderful dear friend and teacher of ours in Sri Lanka, said, don't have idiot compassion. You know, just... It can also involve, like, in response to what's happening in the world, um, fierceness. You know, this is not appropriate. And the Buddha himself, I mean, he was fierce sometimes in, in some situations. And he would, he would, um, you know, he would, uh, it was not like everything was okay. He would challenge people, challenge, push back. And even put put out a proclamation to say this is this behavior and this what this person's doing should not be trusted. It wasn't like oh everything's okay and whatever you're doing. Um, so it's you know it's, it's important for Buddhists to get in touch with their anger and not just think you shouldn't have anger, but then to work with that consciously and to you know to dwell in anger and to have it go into hatred is not skillful, but to to not be able to feel anger and the wisdom of that sometimes in the place where it's saying there's a boundary being crossed or a violation is is not psychologically healthy and also spiritually it's important because it's a wisdom it's an energy that's very connected with wisdom so when you can actually sort of whittle, whittle it down and decant the fierceness and energy in it and say actually this is an important energy that they need to listen to and then it, it's part of our energy body that can then become strength and you know a strong response if needed you know so someone says oh you're you know you're angry so yeah that's true you know it's appropriate feeling right now you know so it's not to you know just disown the aspects of our natural emotional experiences there's something bad or wrong or failing about that I guess I have the mic, so. Um, but I'll, but I, I, my question, I had two questions. One of them was the one you just answered, so two for, thank you. Um, practically, uh, you know, I've n- not previously um, 
meditated with with too many with mantra and the the great compassion mantra you did this morning was very moving to me and I first of all wanted to thank you for introducing that to me practically speaking are there resources there's there a CD is there something that I can I'd love to be able to listen to that um, yeah when I have, yeah we have um, on our website it's Dharma D-H-A-R-M-A Giri which is a mountain G-I-R-I org. There's a chanting resource, and it has the mantras and... The Great Compassion one. It has the Great Compassion mantra. It has uh, the Pali texts that we chant as well. It has some chanting That's your books. website? Your, that, that is your website, or is that a Yeah, that's Dharmagiri website. Dharma. It's yours. Okay, Dharma, yeah. G-I-R-A? G-I-R-I, Dharmagiri, Mountain. Okay. Mountain. Okay. So it just, the website is Dharmagiri, but it translates as Sacred Mountain, Dharma, uh, or... Right. Giri, but the Sanskrit word for mountain is G-I-R-I. Thank you. So it's Dharma Giri. Okay. Thank you. Um, this is going back to the devotional faith um, elements. Um, I just want to say I, I just resonate so much to that. And um, so... Thank you so much, both of you, for, I feel, you know, often I come, I go on a retreat, and I think that I bring, it's like I haul on my back this bag of, like, spiritual longing, and plunk it down, you know, in the retreat, and then it's like, ah, but, you know, and I, like, do the meditations and it's good and then I haul my bag of spiritual longing home and and so you know I mean I guess I'm I'm I accept the fact that I will be hauling that bag my whole life like that's that's part of what I've learned through my practice um, but I just want to say that um you know, part of, I, I think that, that something that I do when I meditate, or sort of like a sort of baseline starting point is like, I want this and this and this to happen. Mm-hmm. And through the like devotional practices, faith practices, it's more like, ah, oh, like I can, as, as, as you were saying, I can sort of raise myself to this, whatever it is, this, this, this thing that's worth raising myself to. Mm-hmm. And, and so I just really want to say thank you for the opportunity mm-hmm. to do that here. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah, I think I'd like to also just add to that this... I think there's a a place for prayerfulness. In Buddhist practice, this sometimes gets overlooked because of uh, some of our individual collective wounds against sometimes our reaction to what we feel is a hypocritical prayer or devotion that we react to. 
But if we, if we throw it all out and somehow pathologize our longings and sufferings, then I, I think we, we can miss something. And, and one thing I love about a, this practice is sort of just welled up in me over the years through many years of illness where, you know, I'd be wanting to get well, seeing the desire and then I'm pushing the boulders and but still being at peace some and then wanting to get well and, and then realizing one can take our longing, our desires, and bless them by hearing that inner voice which we're identifying to some extent with, but also touching it with listening, having a conversation with the silence, rather than just othering it, it's all to some being out over there, but to speaking into the silence, the the, uh, that which is wise, I, I don't know what to do with this, or like if one is being overwhelmed, like the question about, you know, I, I, when I do the practice I get overwhelmed. You know, we can also honestly be with that feeling and I don't know what to do, but what do I do with being overwhelmed? So that question, rather than assuming that there's only an answer somewhere out there, Part of prayerfulness is that longing, that question, that doubt, whatever it is, what, what, what do I do about being overwhelmed? And then we learn to listen in to the response in the silence. We, it's being blessed by, by, the, by, the, by the practice. And it's the, this, the little sense of me with its longings and aversions and this and that, also meeting and touching, especially when we do, say, the you know, honoring what is worthy of honor, remember the Buddha's name or Kuan Yin's name or a sacred name. Then it allows the, the, these two dimensions to meet and mingle and mix and, and dissolve and merge. So I, I feel there's a, uh, this... So rather than getting beyond all our inner stuff, it's, it's, it's very much of blessing, working with, with with the feelings that we have, and then just listening to to, to what happens. And as the Master, Master Wa said, you know, the secret is in the response. I just noticed that when I would do these practices, something would happen. You know, when I, rather than just thinking of this, thinking of that, thinking of this, worrying about this, worrying about that, hold a name, or for even for moments, bring my body, mind, heart, speech together, that there would be uh, something would happen. Hmm, what is that? So, uh, and I'm, I'm still just developing the language, the language of uh, prayerfulness within the contemplative spirit. Hmm. Thank you. It's, it's hard, I... I... My my sense is, is that it's hard to find the language for it mm-hmm. because it's mm-hmm. it's not a language thing. Yeah, that reminds me. I have one little roomy thing I wanted to read about this, but uh, that talks about to me doesn't say it, but it it's how. Here's one of Rumi's short points. Not until someone dissolves 
can he or she know what union is. That descends only into emptiness. A lie does not change to truth with just talking about it. (laughs) I think that might be a good moment to pause. (laughs) We have some time before we finish at the top of the hour for any more discussion. Um, I'd like to maybe just take a few few stretches Um, after sitting again for a while and then um, a guided meditation again around the the Kuan Yin which I think is important to also understand ultimately Kuan Yin um, has um, arrived through these practices um, through the lineage of um, Tibet and China and Buddhist lineage Kuan Yin also represents really this deepest listening heart which has, has um, has been mentioned can't be captured ultimately in language um, so uh, but can be felt very intimately by each of us so it's a sort of rec- a realignment or reclamation of heart um, which is very a place of great um, arrival and um, rele- relief mm-hmm. So let's uh, just stand up and do a few a few stretches. So again, just as we uh, begin another session of of um, formal practice, to do some guidance around the the Bodhisattva Kuan Yin deepest heart, (coughs) reflection on compassion, beginning with some words, reading. Those who set forth on this path should give birth to this thought. Whatever living beings there are in whatever realms, I shall work to free them. And though I free living beings, not a single being is liberated. And why not? No one can be a bodhisattva who creates the perception of a self, of a being, of a lifespan, or of a soul. So teaches the Diamond Sutra. It's a commentary. Still, If someone should lean towards you on a cold, forsaken night, inviting you to leave your castle wall, lean with her into your deepest hope, because the storm is coming. Do you feel the ardent scream in our heart molten agony rising on fire from the torture of the earth? I dream a wild forest of parrots and monkeys Maybe one day I will return. Earth dust walkers together through the tangle we stumble to return wild shamanic power to the heart's pure peace pulse. In quiet release from identification from the fired and wired off-sync brain merged with the machine, 
prajna intuitive intelligence of the deep rewires. She pours living truth into us and leads our way home. True heart home, soft heart home, fierce heart home, generous heart home, merciful heart home, swift protection heart, invincible courage heart, true refuge heart, destroyer of negativity heart, bliss and equanimity heart, remover of sorrow heart, transformer of poison heart, serene peace heart, distribution of wealth heart, impeccable virtue heart, joy and laughter heart, sublime intelligence heart, creative wisdom heart, worthy of honor heart, foundation in freedom heart, radiant health heart, ferocious compassion heart, all victorious heart, complete enlightenment heart, aware heart, present heart, avalokiteshvara hands and eyes heart, gate, gate, paragate. This mantra is true and not false, mother of the Buddhas, matrix of creation, empty of all distinctions, your true heart hears all beings, their beginning and their end. Your true heart is not the seer or seen, and it is both, just this, parasamgate bodhisvaha. Everything now means nothing, except how much you reclaim your human that loves your life, your earth, your all other sentient beings, and every flower pushing through concrete on your way to work. Because this is the moment you've waited for, the moment for wild prayer, flash mobs, for occupying the corners of fascist madness. Sit your ground, stake your truth, and should you be brave, then shout out to the far corners of the walls until the force of our sound together demolishes every carefully positioned brick. So I'd like to invite you to settle with your breathing. Feel your breathing, welcome your breath. Allow yourself to be simple, guided, led by your breath. As we're breathing, trying not to be somewhere else, just here, simply breathing with the warmth of the room or the touch of the clothes on our skin and the feelings and thoughts that are present in our body, the sounds and the sense of us here together. Not adding anything more, but softening the body on each out breath. 
allowing for what's here, whatever that is. Restlessness, impatience, tears, tenderness, resistance, aversion, peace. It's all as it is. It's receiving what's here within the field of our experience, the field of our awareness. Breathing and deepening our breath. As we breathe and as we breathe in, inviting into our hearts to sit with us at Kuan Yin, however we understand Kuan Yin, deepest compassion, merciful response, timeless patience, profound transformative wisdom, however we understand or feel this profound energy of awakening, maybe in a being we know, maybe in an archetypal image that we have, maybe in a feeling tone, inviting the energy of Kuan Yin into our heart as we breathe in. Sitting with us, occupying our deepest heart as we breathe in and as we breathe out. As we breathe with Kuan Yin in our heart, feeling the different areas of ourself, our body, all the structures of ourself that are present now and have always been present for us in one way or another, and perhaps areas of our being that feel shrouded or challenged or where we struggle. And allowing this breath and the blessing and the presence of Kuan Yin to radiate out through all the structures of our being, of our body, of ourself. Dissolving the feelings that we might carry unworthiness, or confusion, or fear, or sorrow, in places we've been wounded, allowing as if a warm light, a warm resonance suffusing all the structures of our being, allowing that to dissolve some of the areas, all of the areas where we hold against our own heart, hold unworthy images of ourself, diminished images of ourself, old stories. Breathing in, breathing out, allowing gently for our being to be filled with warmth, radiance, gentleness, as if suffusing 
this primordial merciful goodness through all the cells, all the atomic particles, all the subatomic particles, all the energetic resonances of our being, ancient and present. All that's carried in this body through the ancestors, through the histories, through the many lifetimes. Resonating out also into our family lines, our ancestral lines. And forward into those that are children and those to come. Radiating out, dissolving places of suffering, pain, heaviness, wounding, violence, fear, Allowing these forms of suffering to dissolve and to instead to be filled with a radiancy, warmth, love, mercy. May there be healing, may there be strength, may there be courage. Resonating out beyond our families and our communities to include sense of the city here and all the beings and even beyond to the land further afield across the landscape, across the great continents across the great oceans, holding in this profound awareness of Kuan Yin, compassion, of mercy. The feeling tone, the perception, all beings, may they be held, may they be touched by warmth, by mercy, by love. May a great, a great wave extend out as we welcome in all beings, almost as a cellular level, energetic level, dissolving pain and suffering and conflict and loneliness and fear is held in the bodies and in territories and in places on the planet, beings that suffer, that suffer, wars, deprivation, violence, loneliness, fear and dread. Calling on all that which is loving, good, healing, Redemptive, may that force be present, extending to touch the hearts of all beings. 
this world, this community, this globe, with its animals, many species, its rivers, and its mountains, and its deserts, and its great forests. All of the present challenges, holding in our awareness, our collective awareness, as if we were breathing together with all beings. Breathing into this heart of great, infinite compassion from that heart extending out warmth and radiancy, healing and love. Without boundary, without walls of the mind. Kuan Yin is the, the heart that listens at ease to the sounds of the world and is ever present to receive the sounds and the cries of living beings. Ever present to respond May it be so for us, for our communities, for our countries, for this great globe, for all beings. As truly we share one substance. It is like a great regal tree growing in the rocks and sand of barren wilderness. When the roots get water, the branches, leaves and flowers and fruits will all flourish. The regal tree of awakening growing in the wilderness of birth and death is the same. All living beings are its roots. All Buddhas and Bodhisattvas are its flowers and fruits. By serving all beings, by serving this great earth, by pouring the water of living, gentle and fierce compassion, together we will embody the flowers and fruits of our true awakening. And even when the realms of empty space are exhausted, the realms of living beings are exhausted, and the karmas of living beings are exhausted, and the afflictions of living beings are exhausted, we will still accord with this in our deepest heart, endlessly, continuously, in thought after thought, without cease. Our body, speech and mind never weary of this service. So says our true heart, Gate, gate, paragate, parasangate, bodhisvaha. So being with our breath, sense of Kuan Yin or self or other beings dissolving just into the simplicity of breathing here with our body. Feeling the sensation of seat, seat, sitting in our seat. As we begin to come to the end of the formal part of our practice together,
allowing the blessings, the good energy from our time together to suffuse through our body. May everything that we hope for come to pass. May we extend loving kindness to our families, to each other, to our communities. And may we share blessings or good energy or wholesome karma for the welfare of the whole, extending out into this city around us. May there be peace, may there be well-being, may there be awakening. So we're going to um, finish in about uh, 15 minutes um, our weekend of practice and uh, contemplation together. So um, if there's anything you'd like to mention or reflect on or ask about, then please feel free. you're doing after spending the weekend uh, practicing some uh, meditation and dharma
Maybe we should just keep extending it in this one. Keep what? Just keep going. I just wanted to say thank you. I actually couldn't sleep last night. I slept like maybe an hour or something the entire night, so I'm really um, kind of tired, but Uh, I found it very healing Mm. to be here. Mm -hmm. Very, very healing. I'm really glad I came. Thank you. I hope you sleep well tonight. Um, just two things it was so interesting to hear you speak about relationships with chanting and bowing. Um, I have a very bipolar kind of relationship <laughs> uh, with with it, and it's it's interesting because when I'm at home by myself, I really feel a lot of kind of reverence in chanting and bowing. But when we were well, I wasn't. <laughs> um, with watching everyone do the the bowing and then the standing and the chanting, just to feel this incredible, almost like uh, like a knight's armor, like a plate of just pain and resistance across my chest when when that was happening, and just being so perplexed by it you know, um, that duality that can exist in this being is kind of hilarious, <laughs> mm. but really confusing also. Um, so I really appreciate you reiterating um, just that it's okay to watch because mm. I really enjoyed listening and watching that pain. Um, and just another reflection when you said just now, how are we doing? I just, um, I'm marveling at how, how open I feel right now. It's really interesting. I was supposed to visit with someone this afternoon and I said, I think I need to be alone, (laughs) you know? So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for sharing the complexity of what we all hold. I don't know if, if yeah, yeah, with that duality. Yeah, I you... sort of was, well, I, yeah, sort of both holding the practices and inwardly demolishing them at the same time sometimes. <laughs> I think it's complex, you know, working with these, there's a lot go, goes goes on um, for, for uh, inwardly, um, the resistance and uh, heart openings, both are there and, and our and our comp- complex relationships to um, devotional practices, and then who knows what else gets evoked. And, and I actually, Kuan Yin practice is very powerful. You know, like one of the one of the first times we sort of talked a little bit, a little bit of that practice in the Spirit Rock um, at Spirit Rock with Eugene Cash, who's teacher at San Francisco Insight. And he said, "No, that'd be lovely. It'd be so lovely to bring that lovely energy in." And then, the night, the night, and he won't mind me saying this because he spoke about it publicly in the Dharma talk. The night that we started the retreat, he said he had the worst 
day ever and the worst argument with someone that was helping him with a building project. And he said, is that what, is that Kuan Yin energy? (laughs) Sometimes it can evoke, um, as uh, someone was saying earlier, all the tearfulness. It can, you know, it's, it's an energy that also brings up everything so it's 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 like a can be very powerful it doesn't always have to try and work it out rationally why we can feel polar opposite things you know sometimes in the same moment it just it's it's an edge of it's an edge of growth it's an edge of inquiry it's an edge of integration to explore yeah and it's very important not to feel like you always have to have that devotional feeling, part of the blessing of the practice is you see the absolute opposite. The practice can be a mirror to help us see all these things. And you might might not even just be seeing your own. This is huge in the world that was brought up in the other question sometimes of this, if you don't do it this way, you're you're suspect, you know, the, the way devotion can, can you, people can be shamed if they, if, if they don't do it, or you can have the feeling of we're the good guys because we are doing it and clapping in a certain way and singing in a certain way and doing it in the ones that aren't. You know, the, 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 this is deep. It, it, that's why the Buddha compared spiritual practices to a poisonous snake. He said if you grab them wrong, if you grab the poisonous snake wrong, it comes around and bites you and you die. You, if you know how to pick it up by the head, then you maybe can use the poison for an antidote. He said, one picks up these practices to reveal, for revelation, for, for understanding, for, for awakening, but sometimes we can unconsciously pick up a practice to feel better than someone else. You know, all the ways that we see that we've been wounded, many of us. Some people can't even articulate the woundedness, but you know they just know when, when they see a group kind of thing happening. It, it's so we just touch that, notice that, reflect on that, and and uh, but you know as Denise was saying, these practices bring everything out of the basement too, to to help clear the walls of the heart, you know, so so that uh, one can return to the more undivided, deep sense of kinship with fellow beings and with the earth and with the plants, because it's all one substance. Mm. Um, This is a question about the Qigong practice that you did with us. Um, uh, It reminded me of some of the... um, exercises that Ajahn Sushido did when he came. He did a bunch in the spring when he came. Is it a certain form that you're doing? Is it, can you describe, like, if we wanted to keep doing that, how would we learn more about it or learn, do more? Um, I I don't know exactly what Ajahn Sujito is doing, but we've done some similar things, and we've done some of his stuff. But the main our main teacher is Max Fia from Switzerland, and this is uh, he teaches different forms. Um, he does have a book, and he is putting a video out. <laughs> Has been for a while, but his website is um, Max dot W E I E R is uh, how you spell his name W E I E R Max Fia. And um, he's, um, yeah, he's a great teacher, and he's, uh, it's a, um, 
um, yeah, as I said, is several different forms that that um, that he teaches, and that's basically mostly what we do. But some of the things we we do also. And he has a deep appreciation for mm. Buddhist contemplative meditation. Yeah, he sometimes does the qigong or not, or he used to in Europe more on our retreats and in South Africa. Um, he hasn't really taught here so much as yet. Well, he's working on it. He's working on it, but it will come out, and it will be available on his website. Yeah, and he's got a little book, which is very nice. It's put together. He's got a book that he's put together. Well, it's on his website. Mm. Yeah. Max Via W E I E R Max dot Via dot org. <laughs> I just have one quick thing. I just wanted to say how much I appreciate that the two of you bring relationship um, teaching together. How very beautiful and inspiring it is. Thank you. <laughs> it's good job we're not having a big argument about something, isn't it? <laughs> we do sometimes, but not try to avoid it on teaching. <laughs> how could you say that? I can't believe it. <laughs> Okay, thank you so much first. I guess I was always curious in terms of your um, experiences and journeys, especially as you have grown older. Um, how do you relate your practice to social and political consciousness in terms of your own life? And do you ever reflect on it as such? or? I, I, yeah, a lot. <laughs> um, well, we, 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 we were, as monastics, we weren't that politically or socially engaged in the usual ways that one might think of it that way. Of course, in a certain way, walking around with a shaved head in a robe is a radical statement in and of itself, and the whole lifestyle, um, and living on a dana-based economy, and you know, like working with people. Um, I think what's you know what's sort of um, you know, and then working in South Africa and being in in the middle of the finding ourselves in the middle of the AIDS pandemic and being involved in fundraising and supporting response projects and supporting education and you know just sort of needs. But I think more last few years I've been more. Um, um, thinking a lot about and engaging, um, trying to kind of galvanize more of a Buddhist and um, in conjunction with faith, other faith-based response to climate crisis. So I've been pretty engaged in that. Um, and um, at the moment I'm working with One Earth Sangha, which is a fairly new uh, initiate um, platform. It's run from... Um, um, Washington. Um, we're putting together an eco for training, multi-interdominational, for um, to you know internationally as well to help galvanize um, and share um, both political activism but also um, community building around um, alternative ways of thinking about how to be on this planet without rendering ourselves and everything else extinct. 
So yeah, so it's very up for us, and I think uh, I try to talk about it and bring it into our teachings and the Buddhist communities, and because I think the Dharma has a lot to offer in in this regard at this time, and and part of that is political engagement and looking at deeper issues, so social justice issues and equity issues, economic issues underlying and giving cause to the current situation that we find ourselves in globally. Yeah. We talk about, in our, if you actually do um, get a copy of our book, because you'll see through the book there's the journey from monasticism into engaged Buddhism. It's actually called a contemplative journey to engage Buddhism. And sort of tracks a lot of some of the practices we've been doing, but also does address bringing it into the world, bringing this dharma into the world, or um, having the world, you know, never to be crashes into us. So, <laughs> yeah. Okay, I think we're nearly there. Yeah, I think we're good. It's good to go, as they say here. It's been Thank you so much. <laughs> real honor, privilege, blessing to have the chance first to be with you all. And so thank you for taking the time to come. May you go safely. And again, big gratitude to all of you at uh, uh, New York Insight, Dalila, and 7A, and all the others who have been helping us. Thank you. Yeah. Make this possible. Yeah. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.